Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Several of the last few episodes I've done have been with officers who wrote to me wanting to share their stories and experiences. Today is another one of those interviews. This came as an email from an officer who is seven years on with a medium-sized agency in the Mid-Atlantic States. Here is in part what he wrote. I want to discuss the mental health aspect of the job and juggling it with family life. I've been married for about five years. We have two daughters who are four and almost two. I've gone through times when I see things at work that hit me in a way I can't keep bottled up. Calls with children are what hit home the most. I tend to be pretty open with my family about what I experience, which helps a lot. I was really pleased to receive this note and to have the opportunity to discuss the challenges of the job on a young officer and family. I've talked recently with several officers who are newly retired and reflecting back on this very time in their lives and the impact on them and their families. So I thought it would be equally insightful to talk to an officer who's relatively new and working patrol right now. Officer Mike from the Mid-Atlantic, <laughs> let me welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I should note for my audience, we're not using your full name or your agency's name. Many active duty officers choose to do this on podcasts for their privacy. So I, I would say I tend to lead the interview, but you wrote to me, I'd like to know what motivated you to write that and what's going on with you that you want to talk about. Yeah. So I had started listening to podcasts and just trying to get a feel for how other people are dealing with things, both in law enforcement and outside. Just then I came upon somebody I think you did an interview with, Catherine Boyle, and I made a connection with her with the seminars that she's doing. So that's how I found you, reached out. Well, so for my audience, and I mentioned this, and I've mentioned her a few times because she is doing this work. So Catherine Boyle, the lieutenant's daughter on Instagram, she is um, the daughter of a lieutenant, Philadelphia lieutenant, Philadelphia PD lieutenant, and her, almost her entire family is law enforcement. She is a civilian. She's working to help officers like you connect or reconnect with spouses and family. It kind of hit home, like she's doing really good work and mm -hmm. trying to bring awareness. I haven't actually been to an event yet. I should say the main thing is my, you know, kids. I have events with my kids. You know, my older daughter is four and she's in school five days a week. So it's, it's hard to get out. And then the weekends, if I'm working or stuff around the house, but still have to follow the stuff, listen to what she has to say. It's great information, especially for people, you know, in my realm where they're pretty new in their marriages, newer in law enforcement getting off on the right foot. So tell me what it, it, it's like for you thinking back. I've talked to, I think in the course of this podcast, two officers who had two years on, but most of them have been 15 plus. So, you know, you talk about seeing things at work that hit you in a way that you can't keep bottled up. So tell me more about that. Sure. So my wife and I got married in 2018. I had already been a police officer for, for two years. At that time, different types of calls, I would say more of the, the critical incidents, mental health, severe mental health, suicides. We don't we didn't get a lot of homicides, but they were there. Overdose deaths. You know, I was able to talk to her because it was just me and her at the time. Mm. And then we had our daughter in 2019, and then I had a second daughter in 2021. When I go to a call, so the ones uh, that I had said in my email, the calls with kids – you know, 
you can get a hundred good calls, but then there's that one bad call. That call will stick with you. So there is one call where I think my older daughter was two and a little kid had got his hand, it's a medical emergency, stuck in an escalator. Oh. It was out by the time I got there. The kid was you know, obviously screaming, but he was alive. He was talking through it. You know, I see medical emergencies like that every day, but it's usually adults. That doesn't bother me as much. I mean, it bothers me, but not as much. I got in my car. This was probably, probably right before my, my second daughter was born. I bawled my eyes out. I had no idea where it came from. I don't know why. It just came out, called my wife. I was working night shift. She's like, oh my goodness, what's wrong? Do you need me to come? And I told her, she's like, it's okay. You know, we talked it through. I was on the phone with her for like 10, 15 minutes. And then I went on to the next call. I'm grateful that my wife is supportive of letting me talk to her about those things. There's some things that I don't talk to her about that I see at work that I don't think it's necessary because I'll talk to other people on the force. Does she know that? Yeah, no, she knows that. She's like, if there's some things that you think will uh, that will bother her, mm-hmm. she's like, if you need to, like I'm here, but I understand if you want to only talk to people at work or we're there and to kind of debrief and decompress that way, that's fine too. She's, you know, she doesn't take offense to me not bringing things home mm-hmm. as long as I'm getting it out somehow. Mm-hmm. A healthy way. What kind of calls? I mean, it ranges. So where I work, it's we're fairly busy. There's a lot of drug uh, drug related calls. At one point, we had 25 fatal overdose deaths a year, or, or in that year, and that was very high. You know, there was probably over 100, 200 overdoses, and you would go to the same house over and over, three, four, five, sometimes six times, and you'd be like, "Oh my goodness, we need to get this person help." But then you get some. Mm other officers maybe disgruntled that are like, nah, we've been here enough. You can't do that. That's not what you signed up for. I don't care if we're here for the hundredth time, hundredth overdose. This person still needs help. Clearly assault calls, domestic violence calls, not necessarily battered women, but women that have been verbally or emotionally abused. They walk into the station. Hey, how can I get a restraining order or something like that? Mm-hmm. They take a toll on you because I get to go home to a healthy household, but what is this person going back home to when you let them go? Yeah. It's really anything. I was on a homicide case and myself and another officer were the first two on scene. It came in as a uh, cardiac arrest. We didn't know it was a homicide until probably half hour later. We were working on this girl, their boyfriend, girlfriend. And they had a couple kids together. It was in a motel and we noticed some things that were different on her. Blood coming from the ears, you know, the <laughs> blood coming from the mouth. There was... That's not a normal cardiac arrest. Something else happened. That call bothered me on and off until he was convicted. And then tragically, he ended up actually committing suicide in jail, the defendant. But that call kind of messed me up a little bit. They're not every week, but it would kind of pop in my head every now and then. Well, that was a rough one, you know? Mm -hmm. How can I not think about that if I go to a call like that again? Mm -hmm. Um, so there's definitely a variety of things I've seen. Traffic accidents, those are sometimes the worst. You know, fatal accidents, motorcycle accidents. We have a few highways in our town, so there's some high-speed accidents that happen probably monthly. Amputations, car flipovers. Sometimes the department does a good job on trying to debrief you, but a lot of times they, they don't. It's not only that the police department that I'm with. I think that's throughout the country. Right. You know, I right. mean, there are programs out there, but they're... Sometimes they're hard to, to reach. You know, they'll right. put posters up, hey, you can call. 
sometimes you don't have the, the strength to call. Meaning? You want someone to approach you, mm. you know, and that's only happened to me a very few times. I'm, I'm grateful that I'm young. I'm not a drinker. So I don't typically go to alcohol for things like that. What I'll do is if I see something bad and I'm not able to get it out, I will at home. And my wife has pointed this out to me. I'll be there physically, but I won't be there mentally or emotionally. And with my kids, I've seen the toll on that. My older daughter was diagnosed with very low level autism. So the effects on that of me not being mentally or excuse me, emotionally present can take a toll on her and you know the attention that she needs. I can't always give her. So it's always a work in progress. That's why they give you good time off in law enforcement to kind of recover yourself. I want to be there a hundred percent, but if I can't, then like I have to let my wife know, Hey, I need you to help me out here or something, you know, just to get through. But mm-hmm. I, I've never been in a severe crisis mode where I'm like totally checked out. I want to be the best father I can. I want to show my kids it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to talk things out, get your feelings out. doesn't matter what's going on. You can talk. So right. I want to read a quote from an interview I did with former NYP, a retired NYPD detective who worked cold case, Jason Palomera. And this is what he said in the interview. And I wanted to see how this resonates with you because it's pretty much what you're saying. Everybody brings it home. Every cop, I'm sure, brings it home differently. I escaped what I like to describe as my isolation island. I would come home and it wasn't like I was going to start to explain, although my wife was always interested in what I did and what I was doing and always made it a comfortable place to unpack. I never wanted to. One, I didn't want to burden her with the terrible things that I was experiencing or hearing or seeing. And then I didn't want to talk about it again. So I would escape to my own little island. Interesting. I I started actually listening to that last night, two nights ago. Yeah. So it resonates with me that, you know, you have your work life, you go to work, see things, you do things, and then you come home and you want to shut it off, but it's hard to shut it off. I don't have that uh, so-called island that that he has well it wasn't something he liked it wasn't good right is my point yeah Yeah. i i don't know if i've ever gotten to that place and i hope i don't just being aware of it now earlier on in my career i think is going to help stop that if i do talk to my wife about it it's very brief if it's something bad but i just sometimes like if it's just a let's say a boring day but a (laughs) semi-uneventful day I like to talk to her about it. And then she like looks at me. She's like, okay, are you done? You know, it's story after story after story. And I'm like, hey, this is the only way I can get it out. You know, over time she's, she understands. And then she's like, okay, can you talk, let me talk about my day? You know, like, yeah. I don't always, I, I sometimes feel that, that when I'm saying it to her, she thinks what I'm saying is the only most important thing in the world, which it's not. But mm-hmm. sometimes when you get home, especially after a, a rough shift, even though my drive is kind of long, my adrenaline and all that, mm. those hormones and stuff going through my head, th- that's still pretty high when you get home, especially if you've had a mm-hmm. rough day. But I don't want to go to that island that mm-hmm. he, that uh, Jason said. And, you know, like I said, I'm not always, I'm physically present, but not always mentally and emotionally present right. for my wife and kids. If I keep going down that road when I'm having a rough day, yeah, it might lead me there but I'm, I'm doing everything in my power not to. And I've told my wife this too, and she's like, well, that's a problem. So 
I've had times where it's so stressful at home where it's getting better, but over time, the stress taking care of the kids and just doing the household stuff over and over and over. It's very mundane. I'm like, my wife mainly stays home. She's starting to slowly go back to work. And I'm like, how do you do this? <laughs> Even my job, how stressful it is, I've had times and I've told her and I felt terrible saying this, I feel less stress doing my job because I'm in my, my metal office of a police car for 12 hours mm -hmm. and I can l listen to the radio if there's no calls going on or if it's just minor calls, just doing my thing. And I'll come home and I'm, I feel more stressed again. And she's like, yeah. you need to switch that around or take the stress out of it altogether. So we've had those rough conversations. I felt like I was on my own. Yeah. You know, at that point I was like, uh Oh, well, you know, I am not a police officer and I don't have two little children. It is young children are stressful. <laughs> yeah. They're very rewarding, but they're also stressful. You know, the hours are, what's the saying? The, the days, days are slow and the years are shorter or something like that. Or, or days are <laughs> the long. Days are the year, long yeah. The years. Yeah. Years are short, which is true. Being with them, you know, for multiple days in a row is very rewarding, but it's exhausting. I love them to mm -hmm. death. Sometimes I'm like, I just need to go back to work, you know, especially if I take an extended vacation just to be home. They're only four and two. They don't really understand. My four-year-old is very interesting when I try to have a little conversation. They're both girls. So it's like, you know, daddy's got to go to work. He's got to, you know, help people. She's like, I want to help people too. And I'm like, one day, you know, you can right now just be the best you can for mom. If I'm not home, it's going to be okay if I'm not here. I promise, you know, yeah. you're strong too. What shift are you working? So right now, I'm mainly just working day shifts. So it's 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., 12-hour shifts. I have day shift the entire year. Some departments flip-flop. Um, they'll do days and nights, and some will have eight hours, some mm. will have 10. I do like the 12s are long, but you have those like full middle-of-the-week days off to actually be home and be a human being and do stuff at your, yeah. you know, your house or stuff with your family. And the three-day weekends are nice, too. You had said a little while ago you wish that someone would come to you versus you seeking someone out for support. Yeah, so there's posters. Most police departments have them, first responder helplines and things like that. I'm part of the team in my area called Critical Incident Stress Management or CISM. But those are mainly for if the big incident happens, uh, like right. a shooting, like an officer-involved shooting, right. that they reach out. But they don't do it all as often as they should. You know, if I see something, if it's a minor call, maybe like a week later, have somebody from, I don't know, maybe that organization or another reach out to the police department and like directly offer the resources instead of just having that piece of paper that's sitting there for the past five or six years that it's just, you know, you're, you're just looking at it. You, sometimes you want that hand to reach out from that paper and grab you and say, hey, are you okay? Instead of you calling. I think it's harder to ask for help than for somebody just to say, Hey, are you okay? That's it. Just, yeah. are you okay? I've had people I work with that have said, Hey, that was a rough call. Are you good? Yeah, I'm good. Are you yeah. good? Okay. That might be it then, you know, but then you follow up right there and then might not be the acute symptoms. Right. But long term, you never know. Right. You know, so I always ask people, right. and they're like, Oh, why are you asking me? I'm like, Cause I, cause I care about you. We're all human. We yeah. bottle things up so long. Yeah. I know you mentioned the one homicide that stuck with you. Are there calls that in the moment you said, yeah, I'm, I'm good. You good? Yeah, I'm good. And then later you're not so good. Yeah. So 
it was a call I had. I was probably a year on. I was a couple months off field training. And it was a, a kid. Uh, I wasn't married yet, but anyway, it's still a kid. He had got hit by a car. It wasn't a fast-moving accident. The child had gone to chase a ball across the road in this trailer park area. And this guy was just driving. Didn't see the kid. I was the first, maybe second one on scene. I had to hold back dad from chasing down oh, this no. car. And I'm new. I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm just doing the best I can. And I can't recall if they offered services for that. I got close, but I didn't get that close. But that that runs through my head probably every couple months. Oh, boy. And I was the one that had to tell mom at the hospital that her son didn't make it. I'm you know, not even married yet. And I'm like, uh, you know, like I, I can handle this. Yeah. I did it. I couldn't handle it. Yep. I'm, I shouldn't say grateful, but it, it was towards the end of my shift. So I was able to do that and just go home instead of doing that and then going through the rest of my entire shift, not being there mentally. So that, that was rough. That was new. I was 23, maybe 24, yeah. not even, you know, it's not something I knew it was something I was going to, I signed up for, but I didn't expect that ease me into this, but it was, there was no easing of anything. You know, one of my right. first calls, I wasn't even on the road yet. And my first day I got sworn in. Hey, you got to come in the next day, start administration. Hey, guess what? We have a homicide. What? <laughs> I just turned 23 last month. Whoa, it was like slow, slow down. <laughs> I thought this was all supposed to be like really cool stuff, but not, not that, that fast. You know, I what? It was like way after the fact, and I was just kind of there for the processing of the scene, which was interesting to see. So that that one didn't really bother me as much because, you know, I wasn't there. It was my first day. I wasn't even on the road. But that one with the, the, the child really did bother me yeah. for a while. And I didn't know of all these other resources that are there now then because nobody talked to me about it. Right. You know? Which is something I was going to ask. How much do they tell you when you're either in the academy or doing field training in terms of resources? I'd say very little, maybe a little more now, because um, I think that topic is starting to emerge where they're seeing the right. effects. I was in the academy in 2015. I can't recall one time that they, you know, all they say is take care of each other. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. I don't know anything about resources, field training. They didn't. There was nothing. I didn't know what SISM, what the critical engine stress management was, until I was probably four years on, three or four years on, where they offered it once. And I don't know if it was my call or another, but, and then I was like, well, I want to be part of that. Mm -hmm. How do I do that? Oh, you can take this three-day class. All right, can I go? Yeah, okay. And we did mock interviews. You know, we were all police officers in the room. Actually, there were some people there that were social workers and things like that, but how to talk to somebody that had just went through trauma, you know, mm -hmm. how to, how to go through it professionally. So this was after being in critical incidents yourself. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I can't even count how many mm. depends what you define as a critical incident, but I had one where I did a car stop. It was an overnight shift and the guy had a warrant walk up to the car. Like I always do. He had a knife to his throat. I was like, Holy oh. crap. You know, wow. so then I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to back off. Like, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. If he just keeps drawing me in closer, it's going to be bad. I'm just going to go back to my car. I call my sergeant on the phone. He's like, I'd rather you put that on the air. But I was like, listen, this is what I got. 
ended up, we got a crisis intervention officer there. I wasn't trained in that mm. at the time. This guy did a great job, the neighboring department. He was outside for probably an hour in this below freezing weather while I went down to the crisis center and got a commitment approved for this gentleman who needed help. Hmm. He really needed help. I mean, unfortunately, he had to go to jail afterwards when he was done with his mental health commitment. But I talked to him a little bit afterwards. He was at the lowest of his life, he said. And it was me that day seeing him on his worst of days at the worst possible time. Right. Yeah, that one, I mean, at least it had like a semi-happy ending. There was nobody hurt or anything like that. But, you know, that that was hard. Yeah. Well, the homicide was hard. The child was hard. I would even consider that other child getting his hand stuck in an escalator. I would consider that a critical incident, at least for me. might not be for everybody. I had a motorcycle accident uh, this past summer. He was driving next to somebody. They moved over. They tapped him, and he went right into it like a concrete barrier. He survived. He was 18 years old. You get there. You see limbs the way they're not supposed to go. Yeah, that messes you up for a little bit. You yeah. know, it's like something is not right here. And then, you know, I don't know how descriptive I can get on here. I don't want whatever you want. You know, you hit something going 50, 60 miles an hour on a motorcycle. You got nothing around you. He, I mean, he was alive and he still survived. But like the, the noise that comes from somebody that's going like that fast, it's like the moaning of the pain and they can't talk to you and you, you feel helpless because. What are you supposed? I'm a trained EMT, but like, I, there's only so much I could do. The best thing to do is just keep them stable, keep their necks stable. Don't move anything. You move something, they can end up paralyzed. Yeah. So literally, their life is in your hands when they're helpless. Yeah, I, I try not to bring that stuff home. But do you feel that once that command staff, chain of command, command staff are unaware, become insensitive to? the needs of their patrol officers? Um, I think it depends where you go. I think it depends on the area that you're in. I don't think that they don't care. I think it's that they might not be fully aware. Most command officers, let's say almost all, were in patrol shoes at some point um, or any other shoes in the police department, so they should know. Most people do a good job of saying, you know, I know where I came from, but then there's others that don't. Yeah. So the ones that do, I think, should take the torch and say, hey, we need to help these guys out, girls out, if they're going through something. Let's offer something. And what is the acronym you said for SISM? What does it stand for? So SISM stands for Critical Incident Stress Management. Each county in my area has their own team. They're mainly volunteers. Police officers, firefighters, EMTs, social workers. They'll call to the, the local dispatch and say, hey, we need a SISM team. They'll get a couple people together. Hey, you available, you available. This is where you need to go. This is the incident they had, and these are how many people. I haven't had the opportunity to do that, to go yet, but I've been certified for about a year. Okay. And then a little bit before that, I got a certified in crisis intervention, or CIT, is okay. cr- critical incidents. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We're able to talk people down, people with mental health issues. We had virtual reality. What it feels like to be someone with schizophrenia. I knew what mm-hmm. schizophrenia was, but this took it to another level. Wow. You're hearing the voices and you can't focus on what these police officers are saying to you. And then maybe six months later, seven months later, I had an incident with somebody that's schizophrenia who also had a drug issue at the same time. So that got amplified. You know, try to keep your distance. Is this 
girl in her 20s at her parents' house just having an episode, and they called us. Having a mental health issue is not criminal, you know? Right. So there's the fine line. Do you think that law enforcement should have to respond to those calls? Because there's a lot of talk about having mental health professionals respond. Yeah, so it's funny you ask that. So we have a co-responder program with our county agency. So they're actually social workers. They will usually work Monday through Friday, nine to five, eight to four, something like that. But they're always staying late. Ironically, all the calls come in at like four or five o'clock and they're they're coming. So <laughs> they'll right. hear it on the radio. They'll either call an officer or they'll be like, all right, I'm just going to start driving there in their civilian car, right. that location. We'll handle what we need to to calm it down and be like, hey, do you want to talk to somebody? Yeah, sure. More more often than not, they say yes. I've got a few no's, but that's just the nature of the beast. The individual comes there, mental health co-responder, and they'll offer them resources either, hey, we can get you some housing if you need it. We can do this. Not everything is immediate. There's some, but not always. There's always a backlog of, hey, call this number. Hey, call this. So they're giving resources. I still think going to the call, I think, is necessary depending on what it is. So Mm -hmm. if it's something where potential violence might occur, Mm -hmm. I think we should go. Yeah, sometimes just our presence, the police car itself, our uniform, not even saying anything, will amplify it. But you don't know until you go. What if that person starts hurting somebody and you're like, no, we don't need the police. Well, now what? Right. And and the same thing goes with the co-responder. We have a recovery specialist also. So any, anybody that has a drug addiction problem, if it's after hours too, they can get referred to them or the co-responder to then they're going to follow up with them to try to get them help or resources or right into rehab sometimes. I've covered the co-responder co-deployed model and the MHP will say, the woman I interviewed anyway said she would not go to some of these calls without law enforcement. Yeah, there's that too. I built a good relationship with the co-responders in my police department that they're, they'll just call me on the cell phone. You know, I'm not a supervisor or anything at the police department, but they're like, Hey, what's going on? Do you think you can come with us or can you get a couple guys or girls to come with us? Yeah. They don't know what they're getting into either. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to something you said that was so interesting is when you started, you know, I think I would be the same way. It's like, can you ease me into this? Yeah. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> so take me back. I guess we should start with why, what made you decide to become a police officer? So when I went to school, I was originally going to go for forensics. And uh, then I looked at the course list and I said, no, nah, it's too much science. I can't do that. I, I like science, but I didn't like it that much. So then I was like, okay, <laughs> let, I'm going to try to go be FBI. You know, I'm 18 years old. I'm going to do FBI. Probably halfway through college, I was like 19, 20. I was like, oh, I need a little more experience to go in the FBI. And then I got talking to people and it's, uh, I didn't feel like it was for me. There was a lot of office stuff and uh, they weren't even hiring many criminal justice people at the time. They wanted accounting and, and IT or all, all that stuff. But I didn't have that. It was criminal justice. So I was like, all right, let me start applying to police departments. And that's kind of how I became police officer, kind of that route. It's not like I wanted to be one my entire life. I, I didn't know. I don't have anybody in my family in law enforcement. You know, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a business owner. Then I just started doing everything I can to make me a better, pers- a better person, better candidate. And then went to police academy. So where I live, the police academy, many police departments will not pay for your police academy. You have to pay yourself. Some do. My, my department mm-hmm. will pay, but I didn't know at the time. I didn't, even know, I didn't even know my police department at the time. You take a whole test and it's the entire area. So I paid for my police academy. I uh, 21, turned 22. It took me 
probably 10 months to get hired a month after I turned 23. That was it. It was on. (laughs) Now I'm 30 and I still love the, still love the job. So go back to those early days. I mean, you just said it was like, ease me into this, but what, so was it what you thought it would be or not, or some combination? I would say it was a little bit of a, a combo, a combination. The field training, I didn't know how hard it was to f- figure out geography of an area <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know the town or anything where I work now. I mean, now I can do it in my sleep, but I was like, oh my gosh, I work in a town that's 20 plus square miles. I mean, it's not a city or anything. It took me like a month to figure that out of where to go. And my <laughs> FTL was like, hey, you can use your GPS if you need to. I'm like, oh, thank God. That was probably one of the harder parts. And then dealing with controversy, mm. first person. I had life experience, but I didn't have life experience like that, of like people screaming in your face. And and I was like, whoa. So I actually had my field <laughs> training extended because they're like, hey, can you handle this? <laughs> so I was like, oh my gosh, am I going to make it? <laughs> so the adjustment to I'm not yelling back at people, but trying to mediate things, I didn't mm-hmm. have that that skill right away. So I had to kind of grow into it. So instead of 12 weeks of field training, I have 15, 16, mm-hmm. but I still made it. Yeah. They said, it's all right. You'll get it. You're still young. Or I was able to learn their way of trying to handle this and, and the people that we dealt with on like a daily basis in that area. Cause I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Yeah. yeah. I've heard officers say this, you know, you get out there, it's like, what do I do? You know, so, I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And they expect you, everyone looks at you like, you know, the answer. Some, I'm going <laughs> to be honest. A lot of times we don't know the answer. We just try yeah. to figure it out. I don't know where I got this saying, but I try to work the problem. What do you got and what can be done to solve this problem or at least put like some type of resolution to this issue until it happens again? You know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. domestic violence, you make the arrest, it's supposed to stop. You don't have yeah. control after bail. Yeah. You know, you can do what you can do. Right. You know, one of the things I learned when I first started interviewing law enforcement 13 years ago, I had no idea. Well, I didn't know that everyone started on patrol to start with. And then I just, you know, what they, what I was told is, you know, you're called to call, to call, to call, to call. And you might've been at maybe someone's alarm going off at their house, but then you go to a DV or a suicide, and then you have to go to some minor incident, which you're carrying around as you go to these calls and encountering people, the people you're encountering don't know what you've just been through. Yeah. That's hard. Sometimes I would say that was one of my harder adjustments when I was new. Mm. Now I'm not going to say I don't care about the last call, but usually I try to like put that in the rear view, deal with the next Mm. one. And then when there's time to like bring it down, then I'll process Mm. everything. Sometimes it's kind of like a mind dump, you know, you're like, Whoa, what just happened? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm grateful that I don't work in the city area, so we're we're typically not called a call, but there are times where it is non-stop, 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. People are getting home, they're, f- whatever, fighting, car accidents, more cars on the road, so at that time, typically, mm-hmm. we'll call volume will go up, and that's when you're like, whoa, slow down, <laughs> you know? And then you're short, yeah. you're short on the road, you know, you're working minimum manpower almost every day. Because of low staffing? Low staffing, people don't want to be police officers. That's I've seen that trend of 
people not wanting to apply retirements and then not being able to hire people, people mm-hmm. resigning or, or whatever, going to do something else. Mm-hmm. You just have people that work 30 years, 35 years. You see that a little bit, but not, and I feel like that's kind of dwindling. Yeah. You know, the extra money yeah. sometimes not always worth it. Right. And I've thought that too. People are like, oh, you're going to work 30 years. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Can I do this for 30 years? I can go do something else. This is a great career, right? It's a great ride, but how long can you do the ride for? Yeah. And then there's yeah. the point of, well, how do you transition out? Yeah. That's a different conversation, but you know, I always think of that. You talked about adrenaline and I think about adrenaline in the moment of the incident. Really didn't think about bringing the adrenaline home. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. My commute right now is 45 minutes, but sometimes the adrenaline's still there because I want to tell my family, you know, maybe it was just an interesting or a funny call or something like that. And I'm like, oh, I'm excited to tell them, even though I've been up for 17 hours, 18 hours, right? And then you get it out and they're just like, you know, you just yeah. kind of crash. Dump. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, whoa, 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 slow down. I'm like, you have no idea, you know? So a lot of times <laughs> I'll try to do actually on the phone, I'll make a phone call to my best friend or, or somebody like, hey, it's storytelling time or something like that. And that's like a funny way to get things out. Yeah. I don't always get that, but people are like, all right, you're going to be home in 40 minutes. I'll see you when you get home. Like, no, no, no. I want to talk to you now because if I get it out now, you know, I won't be annoying later. My wife always says, she's like, all right, get it out. And I'm like, what? She's like, you're, little, you're a kid. You're like a little kid. I'm like, well, it's nature. I got to get it out. I have to talk well, about that's it. That's good. Yeah. yeah. You know, and she's like, all right, call my grandmother or something like that. You know, we have a really good relationship. My wife and her side of the family and I have really good relationships. So I'll call one of them and be like, you won't believe it. And they'll be like, oh my gosh, you know. And this is makes the job easier. These funny calls that happen. We get calls of yeah. people stealing crab legs <laughs> from like, you know, the grocery store. Like, who's stealing? What? Like, that's disgusting. You're running out of the store across the parking lot of crab legs. Like, But that's what makes the job easier is like those silly calls. Yeah. Getting it out, I think, is important, no matter what it is. Yeah. Well, it seems like you still have a lot of enthusiasm for the job. It's not like you're, I mean, seven years in is not a a lot of time, but it's not a little time either. I mean, it's, I mean, you're. I'm in it. Hitting your stride. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they say after five years, you've just about seen everything. And depending on where you work, you know, I would say I, I could probably handle just about every call except something really nuts that you would think would never happen. Basic patrol calls, I should say, or some type of critical incident. Yeah. I'm comfortable handling most critical incidents, obviously with support. You know, I think I know what critical incidents are, but maybe I should have you define them. Because in my mind, a critical incident really is a shooting, but it sounds like that's more than that. Yeah. So I would say that's on the higher end of the spectrum, like a police officer involved shooting. Let's say on the lower end, critical incident might be maybe a car crash. Not a fatal car crash, but that's a little closer to the shooting. Maybe not a, a full shock to the conscience. You know, I, I'm sure you've heard that. But Mm-mm. so if you see something, you're involved in a shooting or you see somebody get shot or the car. So I had a car crash earlier this year. Car got hit, it flipped on its side. The sunroof was open. Gentleman's arm was out of it and oh. got amputated. That is a critical incident, right? That, that shook me. It, yeah. In a way that I'm, it's hard to explain. That was rough because you're trying to put a tourniquet on him there. You're trying to put a tourniquet on his leg. Unfortunately, he didn't make it. He made it to the hospital and all that, uh, but unfortunately, he didn't make it. We did everything we possibly could. That that shook me 
and shook my consciousness. That's pretty intense. I would say that's pretty critical. But then you have ones that are cardiac arrest. We get these all the time. I, I don't know why. They happen like weekly. So after I've been to 10 or 15 of them, I still consider them all critical incidents because you have somebody's life in your hands and they're potentially dying right in front of you. But it comes to a point where like you see so many, you're just, you're in it. You know, it's a critical incident, but you got to go to work and do this. You've talked very eloquently about some of the tough parts and, you know, you did say there are some of the funny calls. Right. What are, are there some rewards? What are the rewards? I would say in the past couple of years, a big thing, I wouldn't say a goal, but I want to be, you know, somebody can have, this is my opinion, five, 10 terrible contacts, say five terrible contacts with law enforcement, right? They've been arrested or something happened, right? I want to be that person that can potentially start swaying that. So I've gotten so many thank yous on traffic stops. I'm not one to give a bunch <laughs> of tickets, right? But if I do, most of the time I will get a thank you. How come? I, I think it's, my wife says you're just the nicest person, you know, well, sometimes. <laughs> I just give people respect. Okay, mm-hmm. you're having a rough day. Hey, you went through a red light. I can work with you. You know, I tell them, I can work mm-hmm. with you. Come to court. I'll work with you. Mm-hmm. 99% mm-hmm. of the time they come to court, I'll lower it to something. I tell them, you have my word. You know, if you do a not guilty plea or however they do it, and I see you in court, I can't promise you. I say, I can't promise you. But 99% of the time, the judge will change it to something for no points. So I'll get a thank you at the end of the day. Or it could be something, oh, like, I don't trust the police. And we're like, well, why? Well, this happened. Well, listen, I'm not like that. This whole police department's not like that. However things were done, wherever you used to live or here 20, 30 years ago, that's not how it's done. Let's change your perspective. You know, I may not be that crazy formal with them, but I'll be like, hey, what's your issues? I want to help you here. So just getting a thanks, hey, that means a lot, or hey, you're you're pretty good, or yeah, you're you're a good dude, or or whatever it is. I don't know. That makes me feel good. Fills yeah. up my bucket. Yeah. Even just thanks, yeah. you know, on their worst days. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks for helping out. Yeah. That's all. You know, just one good interaction can sway people's minds, I think. I think one incident at a time. Well, that's that's great. Well, you know, I make it a point to thank officers. It's a little, I've said this many times on this podcast, is for as long as I've been working <laughs> with law enforcement, you're very intimidating to walk up to, oh, you know? Yeah, I, I'm trying to change that. So I hope my like friendly <laughs> smile brings people. You have a friendly face. No, that's good. <laughs> I saw an officer one day. I try to be careful and I, I don't want to intrude. I don't want to distract. He had parked in front of the fire station and was getting out of his car. And I said, officer, could I speak to you? And he looked at me and he, he was probably thinking, you know, either she's going to ask me for directions or she's going to tell me how much she hates the police. <laughs> and I just said, I just wanted to say thank you for being a police officer. And he's like, what? Yeah. And I'm like, thank you for being a police officer. I didn't want to close the gap. Right, I didn't yeah. want to get closer to him. I didn't want to, I mean, I don't think I look threatening, but, and he was like, oh, thank you. You know, yeah, it's, and, it's weird. We're like always on edge until we're not. And <laughs> yeah. I don't like being on edge like that very often, but unfortunately you have to be, you walk up and like, oh, probably a sigh of relief. I was like, oh my goodness. Thank God. You were nodding when I said, ask for directions. You get that a lot? All the time. You'll be sitting somewhere and then like the most random person, where did you come from? How did you find me right here at this time when you were, I don't know, you're like a magnet. You know, you you had this great line about how you wish that hand on the poster would just reach out to you. How do we make that happen? You know, 
what what was your goal in being on the podcast? Was it to share your story so other people know that how you feel, or is it? I think it was a mix. One part of it, it's like a small part, is to share the stories. I, I don't like to tell the stories just to tell them. I always think there's, like you said, like an impact on the other end, but also to give awareness if you're hurting or you you see something and you don't know how to process it. There are people out there that are doing the job just like you, you know, like me, you know, I think just being open is part of this, you know, the awareness and the openness. You bottle things up, you know, go down a bad road. You're always going to have trauma in this job, no matter what you do. But if you don't talk about it and you're not aware of it, it will eat you up, even not having that many years on. So no matter how you get it out, get it out. For me, faith is pretty big. I don't like to throw it on people. If you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. But that's helped me a lot, just relying on faith. It's helped my wife and I. Relying on each other, relying on your fellow officers, relying on friends. I always also say is having friends outside of law enforcement is big because they'll ask you things. And that's like another outlet. Instead of saying, hey, this happened, mm-hmm. they'll say, oh, what happened? You know, they'll ask you. So mm-hmm. that metaphor or whatever I said about the hand coming out, Sometimes that can be your hand. Yeah. yeah just talking. Yeah. That's all. So it seems like the job takes a lot from you. Yeah. It it can. I mean, yeah. You know, you're exhausted. I haven't worked night shift in a couple of years. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I mean, add sleep deprivation into all of this. Yeah. And you've really got a recipe for Yeah. I'm going to another police department where it's half the size of the police department I'm in now. In generally the same area closer to home. I don't know what I'm going to see. It's slower, but you know, this goes out to people, even small, little, tiny rural police departments or big, you know, from big cities to, to little ones still talk. And I think the people that you work with make a big difference too. I don't know many of the people in the new place that I'm going to be going to, but the ones that I've talked to seem like really genuine people that care. And where I'm now about to be leaving there are, there are people there that also do care. So there are people out there that really do care. Sometimes you just have to approach them. And that goes any department. But I'm going to continue to rely on the faith, being aware, because you're only human. And yeah. your human brain can only take so much. Do you feel comfortable going for, looking for support, whatever it is, therapy or, you know, structured help? Yeah. So I, at first was kind of weary about it. Um, because like, there's always the stigma. Oh, you don't need to talk to anybody. Now I'm the complete opposite. I actually, I speak to somebody once or twice a month and a lot of it doesn't even have to do with the job. It just has to do with my overall mental health. My wife's completely on board. We've gone places together. We've done marriage counseling where either stuff at work or just us, I think that's the first step, just being open for some help. It, it doesn't have to be like consistent weekly help. It can just be like a once a month type thing to kind of check in, yeah. give you some tools to figure things out. Yeah. So I think that's the first step. If there's people out there that are listening to this that they're like, no, I don't need any help, but I am going through some things, but I don't want to talk to anybody. It's okay to talk to somebody. It's not embarrassing. It's not degrading or the stigma might be there, but who cares? Your, your head is what matters more than what other people think, you know, so reach out. And I know people can be scared to reach out within their police department. You don't have to reach out within your police department. There's plenty of organizations out there, you know, or even a local therapist doesn't hurt. Yeah. 
it's interesting, as I said at the top, in t- talking to officers who are in retirement, actually some of them finding retirement to be a difficult experience because uh, for all of your, for 20, 30 years, you've been, you've had this identity as a police officer. I don't look forward to that day, leaving this and going to do something else. I did have a point in my career not too long ago, actually, probably within the past year of, do I want to keep doing this? Mm. And I did a little soul searching. It took me about a week to kind of snap out of mm. it and be like, all right, Mike, just relax. You're fine. You're in what you want to do. And that had to do with, you know, faith stuff and praying and things like that. But I figured it out through all the noise that this is what I want to do. I have a kind of a backup plan. Not really. I have a master's degree, so I'm able to potentially Uh teach at a college. Um, I am teaching at the one of the local police academies. There's two within like 10 minutes of my house. So I'm able to teach. Um, It's something on the side to kind of get my feet wet in something else. And also, God forbid something happens. I still think that degree will help. But I don't, I don't yeah. know what else I can do. It'll be a rough transition. God willing, it's not going to be before I'm 50 or 55. But afterwards, like if I want to keep working or doing something, like I have no idea. Yeah. Will you love it enough to stay in it for now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, my plan is to stay in it, get my kids through college. and. Does your four-year-old, does she see you in uniform? And does she understand that daddy's a police officer? Yeah. So she, she always jokes with me. She's <laughs> like, oh, daddy, the firefighters came to to school today. And I'm like, Oh, that's great. You know? And I always joke with my wife. I'm like, those fire guys, you know, whatever. And she's like, aren't they your friends? I'm like, yeah, they're my friends. I know. I'm like, we're on the same team, but this is what daddy does. But then my two year old will like pick up a police car or whatever a toy or she'll see it on two. She's like, that's daddy. Daddy. Oh. So, and that was another thing, not seeing my family as much. Usually out of the house, I'm out of the house by six o'clock in the morning. I don't get home till probably seven forty-five, eight. My kids are already in bed. Mm. They're tired. They're, they're little. Yeah. So there's been over 72 hours straight where I don't see my kids at all. Mm. So I think now working closer to home. Yeah. My shifts are going to change a little bit. I'm still going to work 12 hours, but I'm going to work days and nights, two weeks and two weeks. It's close enough. I think for them to be able to ride on through where I'm working or meet them halfway or something like that. Hey, there's daddy, you know, actually talk to them while I'm working. And so I think that'll help both me my with my mental health and then yeah. with them not being away from me so long. Well, it all sounds like a good plan. Yeah, I hope it's, I hope it yeah. sticks. <laughs> Thank you for contacting me. Was the conversation the one you wanted to have? Yes, absolutely. It was actually better than I expected. I thought I was going to be super nervous, but I was able oh, to be open <laughs> yeah. about it you know, and spread the word. I enjoy as a civilian being able to support you as a police officer. That's my intention with this. In addition to giving officers a platform, it's to let you know that there are people who want to hear. I think you're doing a great job with that through listening to all your stuff. I think you're doing a great job with that. Thanks. Well, it's really been a thrill talking with you and you know, you warm my heart. I believe in your future as a police officer. Thank you. I think <laughs> I think we're at different points in our life. I imagine you looking back on your life now saying you you know there was a lot of stress. But I you know it is normal to have stress with two young children. <laughs> and and you have a stressful job, but you're doing a great job of handling it. Yeah, I'm doing the best I can. Thank God, you know, I have the wife I have that's really supportive. Her family that's so supportive. <clears throat> My wife's grandparents who are super close to me and they actually live with us. Her grandmother is like a mother to me. 
you know, is so supportive. So if without them, I wouldn't be able to do this. I'll say again, you know, the message that you want to get out to other officers, which I think was your goal. Yeah. I would say if you are any point in your career, you know, day one or your last day on the job and you have something going through your mind and you want to talk to somebody, talk to somebody. It's worth it. I don't care if it's your husband, your wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever the case may be, therapist, just talk, get it out. Your mind can only build up so much and you will explode at some point and you don't want that to happen, especially if it's going to be around your family or on the job. You have a job to do. You took an oath. Yeah. If something's bothering you, talk about it. It's okay. Who cares mm-hmm. about the stigma? Your mind will thank you if you reach out for help, no matter what it is. So just be aware and be open. Well, Officer Mike, thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Let me speak freely on here. Yeah, you bet. Awesome. I want to thank Officer Mike for reaching out to me for his time today and for his openness on the challenges of the job. And just as importantly, for his doing a job that is not always easy to do. In the episode, I mentioned two people I recently interviewed about the work they are doing to support officers struggling with the pressures of the job. One was Catherine Boyle, the lieutenant's daughter, who is creating events and programs for officers looking to connect or reconnect with their families. The other was retired NYPD cold case detective Jason Palomera, who is a crisis counselor, keynote speaker, and life coach for law enforcement and veterans, and recently published a book called Living Blue, helping law enforcement officers and their families survive and thrive from recruitment to retirement. I will include information about the work they are doing and how to contact them in the episode notes. I want to thank all of you who tune in to listen. This podcast is a passion project for me, and my greatest reward is knowing you're out there. My goal is to make those of you in law enforcement or retired from it feel appreciated, to give you a safe place to talk about your experiences and the job, and to help bring my fellow civilians along with me on this journey of discovery. My hope is that people will ask why, but when they do, that they will wait for and consider the answer. If you're so inclined, please follow me on Spotify. If you use Apple Podcasts, please give the podcast five stars and write a glowing review. (laughs) It helps make it more visible to others. And of course, what probably matters the most is your sharing it with others you think will like it. It helps spread the message. Most of all, make sure you come back. Thank you very much for tuning in.